All right, you can be seated. Good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Chris Henson. I'm one of the members here at Christ Community Church, and uh, at one point in time was one of the pastors here at our church as well. Uh, prior to coming up here to C3, my wife, uh, Sheridan, who was um, playing guitar over here, and I had been in ministry in different uh, churches and in, in and around Texas for about nine years, and uh, I've known Casey for about 18, and so that was what ultimately brought us up here. And so for me, it's a really great honor and privilege to be back here with my church, the church that I love, to preach and to share with you this morning as we begin uh, through the book of Acts. Um, I also want to say welcome to our kids. I know Gatlin had already uh, welcomed you this morning, but kids, we're really glad that you're in here this morning. Color your coloring pages. If mom and dad gave you a donut hole, nosh on that, eat it, enjoy it. If y'all make noise, it's okay. Y'all are not going to throw off my jam. It's good, okay? Mama and dad, if your kiddos are making noise, hug them, love them. You don't need to breathe murderous threats at them later. It's okay. It's all right, all right? This is this is family. We're good, okay? So... Um, you know, this morning, I have a, I have a unique opportunity. Um, we are starting a, a series through the book of Acts. I love the book of Acts, one of my favorite books in the Bible, but I also want to make sure that, that we as a church really have an understanding of why this book exists, why it's in the canon, and why we as a church must spend our time and attention over the course of, of the next couple of semesters really digging into this book. Now, if you've been around Christ Community Church long at all, you know that the way that we typically go through books of the Bible here is chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We do have times where we'll kind of step out of a book of the Bible and we'll do a topical series, um, but the way that we typically go through and, and preach here is verse by verse and chapter by chapter. Well, when we come to the book of Acts, we're going to handle things a little bit differently. It's 28 chapters long. It took us about two years to get through a 14-chapter book of Mark, so I don't want to commit us to four years of going through Acts. Sound good? You guys okay with that? So here's what we're going to do. We're actually going to stay kind of at like a 30,000-foot cruising altitude as we go through the book of Acts, which means we're not going to go verse by verse. We're going to go chapter by chapter, and we're just going to kind of see this, this concept by concept picture of the narrative of what God is doing in the book of Acts. And so this morning, what I want to do is, is kick us off in that process by, by just kind of painting a high-level overview of where I believe we're going to go and and what I believe God wants us to know as we go through the book of Acts, and then we'll actually jump in this morning and begin looking at chapter one. So uh, for those of you who don't know uh, me and my family, we, uh, Sheridan and I have got three little girls at home. Um, it's amazing when I go to the grocery store and other dads see me with three little girls, the kinds of comments that I get. Usually it's just like, yeah, you're a little outnumbered. I'm like, I'm their dad. I run this house. Like, I'm not outnumbered. I mean, come talk to me when they're all, you know, menopausal and, or hormonal or whatever. I mean, like, over the course of the next 50 years, my life will get very interesting, I'm sure. Okay? But, but no. So I've got three little girls at home, eight, six, and one. Um, and for those of you who are parents uh, like us, have you ever noticed that you ask the same questions to your kids over and over and over again? Okay. So one of the questions that gets asked in my home a lot is the question, what happened? 
Now, it gets used in, in three primary ways in my house. The first way it, it gets used is like this weekend when, when my kids are gone, they're at their, their grandma's house. They're going to come back and we're going to say, well, well, tell us about your weekend at Gammy's house. What happened? What did you do? And they're going to give us all of this great detail, all of this great information about the fun weekend that they had with their grandma or when they're reading a book or they're watching a show. We're like, tell me what happened. You know, what was next? So that's one of the ways it gets used in my home. The second way it gets used in my home is whenever someone is running to us crying, sometimes there's another one in the background going, I didn't do it. So, you know, that's a really good question. Kind of helps calm down, help us understand what's going on. And then there's a third way that that question gets used in my home. Any ideas on when that might get used? Yeah. So um, it's, it's a way that as parents usually comes out in one of two ways. It's either while we're holding back laughter or unbridled rage. <laughs> so a couple weeks ago, my kids were playing quietly upstairs, which was the first clue that something wasn't okay. And my wife goes upstairs and finds our two oldest hanging out in our guest bedroom and surveys the situation, sees what's going on and nothing seems amiss. So she grabs the door to close it, and upon doing so, realizes that there's something on the door very much unlike the smooth surface you would typically expect to find on the back of a door. So she proceeds to look at it, and there on the back of the, the door, in crystal clear letters are the words yes and the word no. They were written on the back of the door. Actually, they weren't written on the back of the door. They were etched into the back of the door. And so, in that moment, there was a question that came out. Can you guess what it was? What happened? Right? So, it's amazing how when you ask the question in the other two ways, you get a ton of information. And when you ask it in this way, all of a sudden, answers are pretty scarce. Because there were crickets in the room. There were no answers. How did this happen? What happened? I don't know. Wait, so you mean to tell me you don't know how five perfectly formed letters ended up etched into the back of that door? No. Cute little sister. She did it. She grabbed a nail off the wall and wrote it in the back of the door. Really? Did you really do that? It was a mistake. <laughs> Wait, so you mistakenly carved letters into the back of the door and then circled the word no, and then put the nail back in the wall? Uh-huh. So as a, as a homeschool parent, I feel like if I'd done more catechism with my kids, they would understand the meaning of the word mistake because I don't think they get it, right? That wasn't a mistake. So, so why do I tell you that story? I tell you that story because the, the question, what happened, is an important question. There are times in life as a parent where the answer to that question is, is pretty obvious, okay? We all know what happened to the door. My kids know what happened to the door. Whether they believe it or not, they know what happened to the door. But there are other times in life where the answer to that question carries more significant weight. It carries significant weight when a crisis hits. When a crisis hits and, the, and, and things are falling apart, the question, what happened, 
carries a lot more weight. When there's trouble in your marriage, the question, what happened, carries more weight. When someone has a a health issue or is in the hospital or their life is in danger, the question, what happened, matters. And as Christians, when it comes to this book and the fact that everything that we do is hinged on the truth that is in it, the question, what happened, matters. Because if the answer, what happened in here, isn't unequivocally, absolutely, completely, 100% true, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians, we should all go home. What happened matters. And so, the reason that I bring all of that up and, 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 and discuss this question, what happened, is because when you come to the book of Acts, in the Bible, it is the New Testament's answer to the question, what happened? Acts is the answer in the New Testament to the question, what happened? Without the book of Acts, there is a gaping hole in our understanding of who Jesus is, what the church is, and the authenticity of every book in the New Testament after the Gospels. I mean, think about what questions would remain unanswered in the faith if we didn't have the book of Acts. What happened after Christ ascended? Who is Paul? Why are there 13 letters by this guy that we've never met before? Why are there not more books written by the the 12 disciples that were with Jesus for the entirety of his ministry? What is the church? Where did this thing come from? And why, at the end of the New Testament, is there this entity that is overwhelming the world with the preaching of the gospel of Jesus, when at the end of the gospels, they were a small group of people that were scared and isolated to this remote corner pocket of the Roman Empire? It also answers the question, who is the Holy Spirit? And what on earth is he doing? F.F. Bruce is a a great New Testament scholar, and um, he says it well when he says, Acts is the keystone in the arch of the New Testament canon. Without it, everything else will crumble and fall. Without it, we have no way to make sense of the apostles. We have no way to understand who Paul is. We would be left without explanation for the birth of the church. The book of Acts bridges the gap between the earthly ministry of Christ and the present ministry of the Holy Spirit through his body, the church. It provides an explanation for all of those questions that I've asked, and then some. So the importance of Acts, in my mind, can't be overstated. So what we're going to do today first is we're going we're to kind of zoom out. Um, and we're going we're gonna to look at some details about Acts, like who wrote it, uh, what's the purpose for it, how is it structured. I'm going to nerd out on you. It's going to be okay. You guys can handle it. I promise I will not get into too much detail. Um, and then what we'll do is we'll jump in and we'll actually look at, at chapter one. You guys good so far? Y'all hanging with me? Okay. If any of y'all need to get up and get more coffee, it's okay. It won't offend me. All right, we're good. All right, so here's what we're going to do. Let's open up to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you, the words will be on the screen. If you want to use one of the Bibles in your row, it'll be on page 855. And... Before you go, why are we jumping into Luke? I thought we were teaching through Acts. The reason for that is because Luke is the author of both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And so here at the beginning of Luke, 
what we're going to see is why it is that he wrote both of these books. So let's take a look at verse 1 together. And I'm going to be reading there from verse 1 to verse 4. Luke starts and he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. So hold your finger there and then flip over to Acts chapter 1. And we're going to read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. There Luke writes, and he says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So when you put these two introductions side by side, basically what we see as we come into the book of Acts is that Acts picks up right where Luke left off at the end of the gospel. If you read the end of the the gospel of Luke, he talks about the ascension of Christ, which is what we'll see here in chapter one today. Um, but, But what I want us to focus on is that the principle that guides Luke to write, Luke Uh, as the gospel of Luke, and and the reason that he gives there at the beginning of Luke is the reason why Acts also exists. Namely, Luke wanted to write an orderly account about the things that have happened with Jesus and his church as he heard them from eyewitnesses so that the reader would have certainty about the things that he's been taught. Let me say that again. In other words, Luke wants to make sure there is a solid, verified eyewitness attested answer to the question, what happened? What happened with Jesus? What happened with his church? Why are these things happening? So if that's the reason why, the question we now ask is, where is Luke getting all of this information? He says he's getting it from eyewitnesses. Where is he getting all this information? Let's go ahead and flip over to Acts chapter 16. And I want to start in, uh, in verse 5. And what I want you to do as we're reading through this is I want you to pay close attention to the language here, okay? So look with me in Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 5. It says, So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they came to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. So, did you notice a shift in pronouns in verse 10? Do you notice a shift of pronouns in verse 10? All of a sudden, the writer of Acts goes from saying they, he, Paul, to us, we. See, most biblical scholars believe Luke was in Troas, 
either as a believer or came to trust in Christ because of Paul's ministry there, and then Luke started go with him. In fact, this passage is one of four different places here in the book of Acts, um, including a lengthy visit to Jerusalem, the time where Paul is in prison at the end of the book of Acts, and another spot where they're um, in, uh, in transit between his uh, missionary journeys, where Luke is actually included in the group of people that is traveling with Paul. So Luke is getting this information that, that we're reading today to build this eyewitness account directly from Paul and directly from the people that are traveling with Paul. Um, Luke ends up in prison with Paul. During that time, Mark, the gospel writer, is also visiting Paul in prison. So he had opportunity both in Jerusalem and in prison uh, with Paul to have opportunity to visit with the apostles and with Mark. So Luke, as we, as we understand this book, as we come to it, is not only well acquainted with the things that happen in the book of Acts because he saw them himself, He also had opportunity to walk through life and sit down and talk with the very men who followed Jesus for years and years and years. And so knowing that matters to us because if the purpose of this book is to have an eyewitness account that gives us certainty about the things that mattered, the fact that Luke was with the people who saw and experienced Jesus firsthand means that we can bank on this, that this information is good and right and true and accurate and worth living for. He didn't just get a whimsical idea someday to write a book. He's chronicling what happened as he saw God move. And so knowing who wrote Acts and why, let's go back to Acts chapter 1 and and begin to get an idea of kind of how this book is structured. We'll discuss Acts 1 in a bit, but I want to zoom in on on verse 8 and discuss where we're going to go as we teach through the book of Acts. So let's look at verses 6 through 8. And, uh, and get an idea of, of, of kind of where we're going to go as we, as we teach through Acts. So starting in verse 6, it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of of the earth. So here in chapter one, the disciples are gathered together. It's been about 40 days um, after the resurrection, and Christ has been appearing and making himself known to the apostles and to, and to the disciples for the entirety of this time. And, and as he does that, they ask a question that, that kind of makes sense. They, they ask Jesus um, this question about whether he's restoring the kingdom to Israel. And, and They've heard him talking for the entirety of his ministry that the kingdom of God is at hand. He's been talking to them back in in verse 4. It's not up on the screen, but if you see there, um, I'm sorry, verse 3, he's talking to them about the kingdom of God. So they ask him a question that I think a lot of us would in this situation. It's been 40 days, been a month and a half, and they're like, hey, Jesus, what's next, man? What What's next? Like, are we just going to kind of keep hanging out with you forever? Or like, should we go back to work? Or should we license Jesus gear? I mean, we could make, we could make a killing off like Jesus mugs and bowls and camel saddles and, you know, like, wh- like what are we doing, man? Help us understand what's next. 
And Jesus doesn't knock their question when they ask it. He just redirects it. He says, disciples, the plan for now is not to build an earthly kingdom, but it's to build a people of God who are redeemed by the one true king as he reigns and rules at the right hand of the Father. And he says that that mission is to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses to the truth of the gospel in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So he, he reorients them and says, your purpose, what's next, is not this kingdom where you guys get honor and notoriety and, and power and fame. It is to go out and spend your lives for the fame of the one true king. And you'll do that here and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth once you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so. And church, that commission that they were given is still true for us today as well. Our mission in this interim time period where we are waiting for Jesus to return, our commission is still to go and be witnesses to the truth of what God has done for us in the places that he would have us to go. Now, before we get into that in some more detail, this commission that we see here in verse 8 is actually what we are going to see as we study through the book of Acts. So you can divide the book of Acts up into kind of two ways. One is an idea of gospel expansion, and I should have a chart up here. It's the first chart for you to see. Really, the first seven chapters of the book of Acts are focused on the disciples being a witness to Jesus in Judea and Samaria, specifically in and around Jerusalem. And then in chapters 8 and 9, as the persecution of Saul begins, they begin to scatter from Jerusalem, and they begin to go out to the surrounding area in Judea and Samaria. And then, once you get to chapter 10, we begin to see that the the gospel witness goes beyond Judea and Samaria to the known ends of the Roman kingdom the Roman Empire. And so this commission that you'll be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth is what we see as we go through the book of Acts. But the other thing that we see as we go through the book of Acts is that it's not just about where they go, it's about who is going as well. Because the commission is not is not just focused on Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. The, the commission begins with you will be my witnesses. And so there's another chart I want to show you where where if you kind of look from a high level, you can divide Acts up into a book of witnesses. So the first 12 chapters of of this book are dedicated to the witnesses of Peter and of Barnabas and of Philip and of Stephen and and of John. As they go about their proclamation of the truth of Jesus, we see how they witness to the truth of what God has done. And then in verse 13, there's a pivot and we begin to see that the witness shifts from these men who are in Jerusalem to Paul and his companions. Now don't lose here that the vast majority of the book of Acts is focused on Paul and his companions. Okay, That's not just because Luke was with Paul for a lot of the three missionary journeys that he took as he went around the Roman Empire. It's because as Paul is going, he is planting churches along the way. Churches like the churches in Galatia and Ephesus and Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth and Colossae. It's while he's in Galatia that he finds a man named Timothy. It's in preparation for going to Rome that he writes the letter to the Romans. 
And so the focus that we have on Paul here in the book of Acts is because the, the majority of the New Testament that you and I read was letters written to churches founded by Paul in the book of Acts. So understanding why these churches exist, how they came about, what the preaching was, what the proclamation was, matters because it gives unity and authority to this book right here. So I don't want us to miss that the the vast majority of Acts is focused on Paul because of the letters that he, he gave us here in the New Testament. So before we jump back into chapter one, there's a couple key things I want us to understand about Acts, and then we'll, we'll begin to dig into the text here in, uh, in chapter one today. The big things that I want us to understand as we look at the book of Acts is that it was written by Luke for the purpose of recounting exactly what happened after Christ's death and resurrection. And I also want us to understand that Acts is a book of witnesses faithfully spreading the gospel out from Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth as they are led by the Holy Spirit. But most importantly, more than anything else, what I want us to see in in this book is that God, God is an unstoppable, powerful force. And the movement that he begins in the book of Acts to extend the gospel out is done by men and women who have experienced Jesus and who are being led by his spirit. The powerful, unstoppable movement of God to save people happens through those who've experienced Jesus and are being led by his spirit. Really, that could be the theme of this book. This entire book, as as we read through it, every single week that we come into this room and we sit underneath the preaching of the pastors and and the, the, the leaders of this church, we are going to see that the unstoppable movement of God to save and redeem broken and lost people from their sin is done by faithful men and women who have experienced the reality of Jesus and are being led by his spirit. This entire book chronicles how how men and women in the darkness of their sin are exposed to the truth and the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ and their world is upended. And it is done in miraculous and powerful and life-changing and awe-inspiring manner. And I think what I love most about that is that while that's the story that we read here, it's also the same story that's been happening for the last 2,000 years. The story for the last 2,000 years has been that, that when Acts closes in Acts 28, the unstoppable movement of God to utilize people who once were far from God, but now know the riches of his mercy to go to people who are far from God and explain to them the riches of his mercy has not stopped. That's the reason I'm here. That's the reason you're here. You're here because somewhere along the way, a pastor or a parent or a friend looked at you and said, your life is not right if you have not been made right with the one true king. You need Jesus to save you from your sin and radically reorient your life toward him. And in hearing that, God reached into the deadness of your heart and breathed life. 
And the reason that they did that for you is because someone did that for them. And the reason someone did that for them is because someone else did it for them. And someone else did it for the person before them and before them and before them until you get all the way back to Acts chapter 28. God has not stopped moving to redeem people since the beginning of this book. And that is why we're here today. So it is the theme of this book. It's the reason that we're studying it. It is what we will see, but it also is the heartbeat of our church. It is the reason that you and I wake up in the morning, put our pants on, shave our legs, and come to church. It is the reason why even though you may have ended up this morning in the car frustrated with your kids, angry at your spouse, doubting whether or not it was worth coming here because you didn't know if you could get home in time for kickoff at noon, that you and I still show up here every single week because deep down inside we know there's a reality to the person and the work of Jesus that compels us to worship him because we have been redeemed and saved by him. And so God moves in the book of Acts to save people through men and women like you and me who have seen and experienced the truth of the gospel. And he still does that today. So how does that play itself out here in chapter one? Well, it does and it doesn't. Next week, when we we look at Acts chapter two, we're going to see that the Holy Spirit comes. and, And as the Holy Spirit comes, it begins this powerful, unstoppable movement of the church mobilizing and going out to to preach the gospel. It, It sees thousands of people come to know Jesus as the Holy Spirit is poured out. And it's really from that moment forward that the church grows and and we see in Acts the movement of the, the Spirit. But chapter one today details what happens before that. And what it does is it shows us a people that are ready to partner in the work of Christ what they look like, and how they prepare for the mission that he calls us to. And I think that's important for us to see today because I think one of the results of us faithfully reading the book of Acts is going to be an awareness that we as a church must join in the mission of sharing Christ with those around us. If we've really experienced Christ and have his Holy Spirit inside of us, it must compel us to join in this work of the Holy Spirit directing and leading and guiding us to share the gospel with others. So what I want to show you here in chapter one, wait for it, is that a people ready to be sent are a people who've experienced Jesus and are being led by his spirit. You're like, this guy had to parse Greek for three years to be able to come up with that gem. When are the first stringers coming back? Like, seriously? I know, I know, it's super simple. But here's why that matters so much. Because the theme of Acts, that, that theme, that idea, and this truth about what it means to be people ready to be sent isn't supposed to be complex. You understand that, right? Do you understand how defeating it would be as a people if in order to join Christ in the ministry of redeeming people, we had to be people who had seminary degrees, people who were on staff at churches. We had to be able to parse Greek. We had to have a consistent number of consecutive good quiet time days in order to not derail our Jesus jam and our ability to go and be effective. Do you understand how defeating and discouraging it would be if in order to join Christ in this mission, we had to have amazing speaking skills or certain socioeconomic statuses, or we had to be awesome in our prayer life, or our kids had to be awesome at, at reciting Bible verses and always obey us. None of us would be qualified. 
The only requirement that Jesus has in order for you to be able to be used by him in this mission is that you've experienced and know him and that you're willing to say, Holy Spirit, tell me what to do. I want to go where you want me to go. I want to do what you'd have me to do. I may not be the smartest. I may not be the brightest. I may not be able to teach as well as as that guy or pray as well as that guy or play guitar or dance on screen. That was awesome. But I can be faithful. Is that enough? The answer is yes. Yeah, it's really that simple. That's enough. It's enough. So people who are, who are being prepared to be sent, whether they're the disciples in Acts 1 or whether they're the church at Christ Community Church, if you're a people who've experienced Christ and are willing to be led by his spirit, you're able to participate in the same things we're going to read in this book. Sounds like the bar set pretty low, but when you think about what we had to overcome in order to even be able to go and preach the gospel, it's really a high bar. The grace of God overcame our sin so that we might be able to go and preach truth to others. So where do we see this idea about experiencing Jesus and being led by the Spirit? Take a look at, at uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 3 with me. Again, we're not going to, because we're, we're trying to kind of stay 30,000 foot, we're not going to look at everything in Acts chapter 1 today, but I want to zoom in on a couple key pieces of information here to, to help us see this idea that, that being a people who are ready to participate in the mission of, of Christ is, is first about having experienced him and being led by the Spirit. Take a look at verse 3 with me. So verse 3 says, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So, This time after Jesus' resurrection is a time where he is appearing to the disciples regularly. He's giving them proofs about who he is, the fact that he's alive, the fact that he's not a ghost. He eats with them. He talks with them. He visits with them. In fact, Paul discusses over in 1 Corinthians 15 that that Jesus came and, and not only appeared to the apostles, but he appeared to a group of brethren of over 500 in number at one point in time. And he appeared to James. And here in Acts chapter one, verse three, we see that Jesus is presenting himself alive to this group of disciples that are gathered together um, over the course of 40 days. And he's proving himself to them over and over and over again. In fact, um, if you if you were to zoom out and kind of look here at Acts chapter 1, we won't get into it today, but, but verses 15 um, through the end of the chapter, the, the whole point of replacing Judas, which is what the majority of that section is about, is what we read in verses 21 and 22, which is that um, Peter gets up and he says, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us from the beginning of the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these men must become a witness with us to this resurrection. So so in addition to Jesus appearing over the course of these 40 days and proving to the disciples that, that he is who he said he was, they replaced Judas because they as a community of believers say, hey, we want another person to be able to stand up. And when people go, hey, is Jesus really real? They can look at them and go, you see Matthias over there? The man that replaced Judas? He's living proof that Jesus is who he said he is, that he did what he said he did, and that he is worth radically reorienting your life for So here in in chapter one, 
between verse 3 and, and, and between replacing Judas, the, the point is for us to see as a people that this group, this people, these disciples were gathered together around those who had experienced the reality of Jesus. They experienced the reality of Jesus because before you can go and participate in a mission like given in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you must be convinced of the truth of the person who's sending you. And they were. And my prayer this morning is that we are as well. So let me ask you a question. When you survey your own life today, I want you to ask yourself the question, when is the last time I really truly experienced Jesus? You see, as they're getting ready to go out, their experience of Jesus is what compels them. But when you look at your own life, when is the last time that you truly experienced Jesus? I know most of us have stories, testimonies about when Christ saved us, what we understand that time to have been like. But today, when is the last time you've really experienced Jesus? Church, I think sometimes that our lack of zeal or our lack of evangelism or our apathy in the faith can be explained by the simple fact that it's been a while since we've really had an a experience of Jesus that motivated us. That motivated us to the point where we were, were willing to ditch and leave behind those things which are vying for our attention and instead reorient our gaze and our attention back to the one who saved us. I'd venture to guess if I spoke with most of you about your spiritual lives that some of you would be like, dude, I'm killing it right now. That's so awesome. My spiritual life is so hot. I mean, basically, I just, you know, I'm going to write a commentary tomorrow. My quiet time is so rich. It's amazing. If that's you, talk to me afterward because I just want to like hang out with you and just kind of get the, the vapors of your spiritual life to just waft over onto me a little bit. That'd be really awesome. My guess is that most of you would be like, eh, mm, can you ask me next week? Like, and look, if that's you, I'm, I'm not here to shame you into that. I mean, can I just be honest for a second? Like the first two to three years of my spiritual life when I had first met Jesus were the best time of my walk. And since then, there have been times where I have been great with Jesus and there have been times where it has been so easy to put on a spiritual facade and go through the motions and do my righteous ritual, do my Jesus jam and have no one ask me how I'm really doing and be able to fake it well enough to confuse people. And I think that that's true for a lot of people in the church, not just this one. Because we've, we've gone from believing that the, the soul-uplifting, Christ-exalting, soul-satisfying experience of knowing Jesus and walking with him is less valuable than being able to enjoy the, the thrills and the pleasures of this world. We can remember a time where we enjoy Jesus more than anything else, but it may not mark our, our life right now. And hear me, I get it. Life is busy. Parenting is hard. Marriage isn't easy. Netflix is a powerful draw. Children can be a terrible distraction. Sometimes sleep, especially if you've got little ones at home. Dude, that thing is like currency. I'll, I'll sell, I've got two kidneys. I'll sell one right now for a good night's sleep. Are you kidding me? I can function fine. 
Work can have seasons of high demand, but if we want to be a people that encourage each other and know each other and be led by the Spirit and accomplish the work of Christ that he's called us to, we have to slow down and meet with him. We have to be a people who have experienced Jesus. Not just in relation to our salvation when that happened, but on a daily ongoing basis. We have to be a people who, like those gathered here in Acts chapter 1, we're being reminded daily by each other that the, that the Lord is at work. When's the last time that someone looked at you and said, what is the Lord doing in your life? And you didn't have to fake an answer. When's the last time that you asked that question to someone and they gave you an honest answer? Church, we have to be a people who, when asked that question, can give an answer that says, the Lord is faithfully at work in my life. Here's how I know it. And when you don't have an answer to it, you can point at someone else and say, I feel like I'm out in the freaking desert right now. But I see God at work over here. That's why videos like we saw of the Holmstroms last week are so important. Because in, in the, the dark and dry seasons of your life, it's so helpful to be able to see God is at work. You may not see it right now, but he is. We need to be reminded that sometimes if we don't see the Lord working in us, he's still working in those around us. Because before the disciples here in the book of Acts, and before we as Christ Community Church can be sent, we must be a people who know and have experienced the truth and the reality of Jesus. The second and the last thing that marks this people that are ready and prepared for the work of Christ is that they rely on the Holy Spirit. So take a look back at uh, verses 4 uh, and 5 and, uh, and verse 8 with me. It says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then in verse 8, as we read earlier, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Let me be clear, church. The growth of the church that we see in Acts, the conviction of sin, the transforming work that we see the Holy Spirit doing is not because of the disciples. It's because the Holy Spirit was working through them. And that's still true today. To experience the guidance and the power of the Holy Spirit as a church, if you want to participate in this work as the disciples were preparing to do, we have to be a people that are willing to listen to the Holy Spirit, that are willing to submit to his guidance and his power. We have to listen and not reject his prompting and his leading, even if it's comfortable. Look, I love to listen to God when he's just like, dude, you're doing great. Awesome. Way to go. I don't like listening to God when he says, hey, you really need to repent of that sin. That's derailing your spiritual life and it's creating division between you and that person. Wife, kids, coworkers, friends. I don't like listening to the Spirit when he says, hey, you might want to check your anger on that one. You're walking in unforgiveness and you need to be the first one to go and lead out in confessing that you're not walking in forgiveness and practice repentance. I don't want to listen to him when he does that. But if we want to be a people that are able to enjoy and participate in the work that God is doing to save and redeem people, we have to be a people who are willing to listen to the Spirit, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it means admitting that we're not perfect, even when it means doing things that make us uncomfortable, even if it means that it, it requires us to go places or say things or be people that don't fit our idea of what we want. 
We have to stop quenching the spirit with sin and hard-heartedness and instead with prayerfulness and faithfulness, listen to his leading and direction. So as we close out this morning, listen. This body of believers in Acts chapter one had no idea what was about to happen. They had no idea what was about to happen. And I'd like for us to be a people who could sit here today and say, hey, I know that September 30th, we were all sitting there, but we had no idea what the Lord was about to do. We had no idea what the Lord was about to do because in that moment, in that day, as we joined with our brothers who went before us, we said, Lord, we're willing to listen. Will you lead us? Will you guide us? Will you direct us? Will you be willing to use us as men and women who were no more qualified than they are to take the gospel to Magnolia and Conroe and the Woodlands? or China, or Central Texas, or anywhere he would have us go. The lunchroom at Exxon, our neighbor next door. If we want to see God do things in our life and our church, we have to start by experiencing him and listening to our spirit, and listening to his spirit. Maybe the first step for you today is repentance, repentance from sin, for apathy, for, for laziness, and to pick up the word and, and to begin to experience Jesus again, to remind yourself of the joy that you have in him. Maybe the next step is to begin asking the people around you, hey, what is God doing in your life? Because right now I just don't see him working in mine and I need to be reminded that God still moves. I need to be reminded that I'm not on an island. I need to be reminded that, that I can give my life for, for, for this Christ and not be disappointed. Help, help me remember for some of you, it may be to recognize, dude, I don't know this Jesus that he's talking about. And if he called me to go somewhere, I wouldn't do it because I'm not really convinced of it. And if that's you this morning, maybe the step for you is just to admit that and go find one of the pastors on the side of the room during the, during the, the time of communion and just say, I don't know what's going on, but, but I feel like there's a truth here that I'm not convinced of. Help me understand. For some of you, it might be today to say, I know that I don't know this God, but I want to. And the first step of obedience that you can make today is to place your hope and trust in the God who rescues and redeems broken people and gives them life. Whatever that is for you today, my prayer is that it would not be a decision of inaction because the book of Acts doesn't give room for there to be a people of God that don't act and move. So let's be a people of God that act and move. I believe as we go through this book, we're going to be challenged and convicted of how incredible it is to see the Lord at work. And my prayer for us today is that we would join together as a people and partner with him in that work. Would you join me in prayer?